millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In the autumn of 1944, Canadian soldiers were engaged in one of the most important Canadian battles of the entire war, the Battle of the Scheldt Estuary. The objective of this fighting was to clear the Scheldt of enemy forces in order to allow shipping to arrive in the all-important port city of Antwerp. The logistical reality of the Allies having Antwerp's port open meant that they could continue their push into the heart of Germany. Now, one of the more harrowing actions took place on a narrow strip of land known as the Walcheren Causeway and was one of the final major actions of the entire Scheldt operation. This battle for the Walcheren Causeway was portrayed on film in one of the most expensive Dutch movies ever made known as Forgotten Battle, and this was recently released on Netflix. Now, I watched this movie and then thought it would make a great discussion topic for an episode. So this is Season 7, Episode 6, Forgotten Battle, The Battle for the Scheldt. Now, to help me sort through the mud... I brought in a special guest today, and that guest is acclaimed author and historian Mark Zelke. Mark is widely known, read, and respected in the military history community, and he is the author of the current 13-volume best-selling Canadian battle series, which recounts the major campaigns and battles fought by the Canadian Army in the Second World War, and he specifically wrote a book on the Battle of the Scheldt titled Terrible Victory, First Canadian Army and the Scheldt Estuary Campaign. This was published back in 2014. So Mark was kind enough to hop on board with the podcast, and I began our conversation with him by asking him, what was the strategic background to the fighting in the Scheldt Estuary? Well, the battle comes to be because of um, the liberation of Antwerp. Um, so the British arrived in Antwerp in the first couple of days of September. And so they took the port. And what they didn't do was take the 75 kilometer waterway that connects the port to the North Sea. And that's called the Scheldt Estuary. Um, that remained in German hands. Uh, the British were quickly uh, drawn away from Antwerp to participate in Operation Market Garden. The drive to Arnhem that, you know, is very famous and everyone seems to know about that. Um, and our, that Operation Market Garden, of course, was intended to end the war by Christmas time, as uh, they always say. Um, and so it, it was where the British and the Americans particularly were ready to put all their eggs in that basket. And Montgomery thought, well, I don't need the Scheldt Estuary open to the shipping to come in from the North Sea to Antwerp port because the war is, war is going to be over so quickly uh, if I win this one. And of course, 
they handed it off to First Canadian Army to do the work of opening up the Shell Estuary. But we were already heavily invested in fighting down on the uh, French Channel port country, um, trying to open up those ports and, dis- and eliminate the German fortresses that had been built around Calais, Boulogne, Le Havre, and that. So the Canadians couldn't get there that fast. We, we come in piecemeal uh, from about the middle of September on to the early October. And that battle starts to shape out. So it, it's, it's a slow developing battle. And then it becomes a very intense grinding battle through to uh, early November. Now, what, what, by the time that there's sort of this realization that Rocker Garden is not working, it's not going to succeed or has failed, what does, why does Antwerp's port in particular become so vital at that moment, strategically speaking? Basically, all of the supplies that are coming up to the Allied forces advancing towards Germany are coming in from Normandy beaches still. So you've got trucks running day and night, running ever far farther away from Normandy because the Allies are advancing. And so we end up with a situation where it's taking three, three gallons of gas to bring one gallon of gas up to the front lines. Um, that's not sustainable in the long term. Um, and also just, you know, the reinforcements, all the ammunition, everything's coming from the Normandy beachhead. Antwerp is the biggest port in Europe at that time. It's, it's a massive port complex and still is today. Um, it's also not been badly damaged by the Germans. And so it can basically start taking shipping immediately. And then Antwerp is right where the front lines are. So you're, you're just a short run eastward uh, to get the supplies to the British, to get the supplies to the uh, Americans. So it's, it's vital, absolutely vital that we get this port open. And that's the pressure that's on the First Canadian Army is they don't have the um, freedom um, to do this in a um, slow, methodical way. They have to do it quickly. They're under a lot of pressure. Get this port open. Mm-hmm. And so it means throwing people into attacks without doing proper reconnaissance, um, understanding the terrain, understanding even what the German defenders were that were constantly being underestimated by our intelligence. Um, so it becomes a battle of... of you know, really true grit on the Canadian side against Germans who have everything in their, like all the defensive cards are in their hands. Um, the countryside is what's called polders largely. Um, these are uh, farmland that are only uh, above water because of dikes that uh, surround them. Very typical country in Northern Belgium and in, in Southern Holland. The Germans have blown a lot of the dikes um, in order to flood these polders, and that forces movement to happen on the actual top of the dike. And so these dikes are really narrow. Um, They're still there today. Most of them run about 10 to 12 feet wide. Um, So if you're walking up one of those dikes, you're completely exposed to the German fire. Uh, You also can't run tanks along them because you know, you can knock out the first tank and then nobody's going anywhere. Um, and that's one of the things that comes up here is the use of armor is almost impossible in this battle. So it, it becomes an infantryman's uh, fight almost. You know, there's times it's, it's reminiscent of World War I. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting point. And, and in my readings of it, uh, that that's it does come across in many situations of sort of that Passchendaele-like situation, the mud, the blood, the sort of forward attack, the limited sort of tactical options. Um, there's no question that the terrain is favoring the defender. So this is extremely difficult terrain to fight over. Are the Canadians getting any help from anyone else or is this just on First Canadian Army to deal with? It's just on First Canadian Army to deal with, but it should always be mentioned that uh, the First Canadian Army is a, a hybrid army at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, First Canadian Corps is down in Italy still. Uh, they will come up in, in February of 1945 and rejoin the uh, First Canadian Army. But at this point, it's First Canadian Army. It's made up of Second Canadian Corps and the First British Corps. And there's always the first Polish armored division in there as well. Um, And I think 
the poles particularly often get forgotten in this mix. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were very instrumental in the initial drive up to the Scheldt uh, into an area called Ternusen. Uh, which is a city, a town uh, to the west of Antwerp. And they fought their way up there. And then the Polish division basically ran out of steam. It, it had suffered heavy, heavy casualties in the end of the um, Normandy campaign, trying to close the Falaise Gap. And the Poles, what I always find fascinating about them is they had no way of recruiting anyone from the rear by this time of the war. They had used up all of the Poles that had managed to escape from Poland. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're either serving in that division or the one down in Italy. And so they start recruiting from the front because the Germans had in, uh, conscripted a whole bunch of Polish troops, Polish citizens into their army. And the Polish troops fighting for the Germans took any advantage they had opportunity to surrender. Okay. Uh, and so as they surrendered, there were actually scenes where the, their Poles are coming in. There's Polish um, recruitment people uh, who are sort of around <coughs> figuring out who, who are the Polish troops here. And within an hour, they're not wearing German uniforms anymore. They're wearing a Tommy uniform <laughs> and they're being shoveled into the, into the first yeah. Polish armored division. Um, and that's how they were keeping themselves going. But um, they're at about half the strength they really should be at this point. And they never really recover um, yeah. after this. They, you know, they, they're still uh, important allies for 1st Canadian Army. Uh, all of the Canadians had massive respect for the Poles because they, they were so motivated that they you know, were often recklessly heedless of their own lives because mm. um, they were fighting with the idea that if they did it, if they did a great job, that the Western allies would ensure that Poland could be free. And of course, the, the Poles get sold out on that one. Yeah, the poor Poles. I think they get sold out a few times through the history of that 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 nation and those people. Uh, that That is a great, I'm glad you brought that up. That is very much, you know, we'll talk about the concept of being forgotten, but within the Canadian Army, I think the narrative of the Poles is, is often forgotten and often sort of written out. And I think that's really think important so. to recognize. Um, so, okay, so we have the battle for the Scheldt Estuary, and, 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 and you and I both know it's very complicated. There's a lot of operations going on. Is there a way you can give us or give our listeners sort of, because there's kind of three key operations that occur to sort of close yeah. the Scheldt Estuary. Could you give our listeners kind of a sense of those three operations and how they connect? Yeah, so you have to look at the Scheldt Estuary as it's almost like a U-shape, like, like let's say a horseshoe. Um, so the southern horseshoe is what's called the Breskin Pocket. So that's along the south side of the Scheldt Estuary. Third Division has the job of taking care of that. Now, Third Division are the ones who landed at D-Day. Um, so they've been the longest serving. Uh, they will emerge from the Breskin's pocket with the nickname the Water Rats because of how wet it is there. So then at the base of the horseshoe, you have initially 2nd Division and the 4th Armoured Division, both Canadian units, um, moving up from Antwerp through uh, the biggest port part of the facilities called Merxum and the Albert Canal that connects to it, um, trying to get up to where they can then hook into the other arm of the horseshoe, which is the Bevelin, South Bevelin Peninsula, and then ultimately onto Valkran Island, which is connected to the Bevelin Peninsula by a very narrow uh, feature called the causeway. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of geography you're dealing with. Um, at the base of the horseshoe is um, country that's not so much as the flooded polder country. It is right along the actual Scheldt Estuary uh, mouth, um, but or the head of the Scheldt Estuary, I should say. But inland, there's force that's called the Woos Pontage, um, where 4th Canadian Armoured Division generally does its fighting. And that fighting often gets forgotten because... Um, <laughs> because tactically, it's such a complicated battle. Um, and so the uh, official historian of the Canadian Army, Colonel C.P. Stacey, when he was writing his historical account of the Chalteshtray battle, I think he ran out of word count. Um, and, and so he, the 4th Armored Division get kind of just left 
like it's sort of they're, they're hardly mentioned at all yeah and yet their fighting is very very important because they're fighting their way up to a place called Bergenop Zoom um, which is where the Canadian War Cemetery is for most of the people killed in the Shell Estuary and once they sealed off Bergenop Zoom they would have they made it impossible for the Germans to escape from the Scheldt estuary and also impossible for the Germans to reinforce the uh, German forces in the Scheldt estuary battle. So they're a very important part of the picture. Second division, as the fourth armored division moves up on their right side, then turns and goes into the Beveland Isthmus and fights their way through to Valkyrie. So that's the three phases of the battle that you're looking at. Yeah, and that's a really good description. So it's, you know, third division kind of takes that Breskin's pocket, fourth division then sort of opens up the door to the northern, the northern arm of that U, and then second division kind of closes it out, so to speak. And, and yes, um, and that's right. Yeah, and, and, and so, <clears throat> We just take I because again so let's go to this movie for a second this movie Forgotten Battle the the climactic moment of the forgot Forgotten Battle is the battle for the Walker and Causeway and and visually you know it's a very it's a very compelling mm-hmm. visual finish to the movie so maybe maybe for our listeners you could t- talk a little bit more about the battle for the Causeway itself you know what was why was it so complicated or why was it so difficult uh, this battle what what, mm-hmm. what were the features of it that made it such a brutal aspect of the shell test overall so they uh when they finally fight their way down the south beveland isthmus and they take that relatively easy it's not really a hard slog for them but um that's primarily because the germans are retreating back across the causeway into Valkran island um the causeway itself is about uh half a kilometer long um, and it's, um, I'm going to go from metric to a standard measure. Uh, it's about 40 feet wide. Right. Um, so it's at that time. Nowadays, you drive across it and it's it's probably a good quarter kilometer wide. Yeah. Um, so it's much different today than it was back then. Yeah. So it's hard to envision when, you, when we take battlefield tours there, people are looking around, well, what's the problem? <laughs> and then you have to explain, well, it's much narrower. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was very narrow. Um, the Germans had uh, laid a lot of mines, and as you see, and if you watch the film, a lot of obstacles, a lot of barbed wire, um, hedgehogs to keep the tanks from coming in, uh, a lot of that. They had at the end of the causeway, their end, uh, established 88 millimeter gun positions, 75 millimeter gun positions, and many, many M- MG-40 um, machine gun positions. And when you... Uh, two i should say um when you um all you have to do is basically fire your guns as the film shows actually quite well um fire your guns straight down the causeway and you turn that causeway into a perfect killing field um there's no way of going around the causeway that the canadians are aware of because it's got deep water on either side um and what happens is Eventually, we do get the intelligence that there is a way of coming through the south side of the waterway um, in low tide. Um, And that's what the 51st Highland Light Infantry Division will ultimately do. But we don't know about that at this point. All we know is that there's the causeway. The only way to get into Vulcan is by the causeway. And also... There is a major, the Royal Marines and commandos um, are making landings on two other flanks of the Valkyrie Island, amphibious landings. And the intention as well with the causeway attack is to tie down German troops so that they can't be sent to repel those landings. Uh, So there's a twofold thing, take the causeway and pin down the Germans. And so when you... So it falls to the brigade that has the Calgary Highland Regiment, the Black Watch, and the Regiment de Maisonneuve um, to make this attack. And the Black Watch have been badly butchered just a, a week before in what they call Black Friday in front of Von Strecht. Um, So they're in terrible shape. They, they had never recovered from being chopped up at Perrier Ridge in Normandy. And 
now they unrecovered, they went into that attack and, and are really chopped up again. They have hardly any leadership and are at about half strength. So they make the first attack down the causeway and are <clears throat> just thrown back really quickly. The Calgary Highlanders, who um, are really probably the cream of the crop for second division's troops, um, really, really good uh, regiment, really well led, good commanders, uh, makes the next attack. And they actually get to the end of the causeway, uh, establish a big bridgehead in on Valkyrie Island, but they can't hold it. Um, it's, it's not, it's not feasible. And so they, uh, even after being reinforced by the Regiment de Maisonneuve, those two battalions have to withdraw. And uh, the Maisonneuve are another interesting example, French Canadian regiment. By this point in the war, most of the French Canadian regiments are really running out of men as well. Um, Cause all of the volunteers, uh, and that's the thing is all the first Canadian army that was overseas at this point were volunteers. None mm -hmm. of them were conscripts. It's the only mm -hmm. army of its type in the allied forces. Mm -hmm. um, they have, you know, there's not, they have no reinforcement pool to go to hardly anymore. And so they're always getting weaker and weaker and weaker as well. And we see that. So they're thrown back, uh, very heavy costs. Um, you know, and it remains very much debated uh, what was uh, what was the purpose served by the causeway attack. Um, and you can kick that one around as long as you want. Right. You know, we did pin the Germans down. Was that sufficient cause for the amount of casualties we had? Um, I don't know. It's hard to, that's, that's the kind of stuff I actually try not to get too much into that kind of making decisions on the, the, the armchair general thing um, in retrospect. They did what they were told to do. Um, and then the British uh, were gearing up for basically the same kind of operation when they came into possession of intelligence through the Dutch uh, resistance and not really the way it is in the movie, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> and they learn that it is actually possible to cross on foot uh, to wade across the uh, water body to the immediate west of, of the southwest of, of the causeway. And then they, they outflank it basically and take it. And that's how the battle gets resolved. Are um are the Germans then are they taken by surprise by the landing of the fifty first? Yeah, they 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 didn't think anyone could do that either. Uh, and the fifty first, you couldn't use buffaloes like you would. They we had done this in the Breskin's pocket where we outflanked the Germans with a an operation called Operation Switchback, okay. where Ninth Brigade came in through the back door on buffaloes. They rode across the Scheldt estuary and landed at a place called Hoofplatt. Um, which enabled taking the southern shore of the um, of the Scheldt estuary made that possible. Yeah. But here, the water is too shallow. The buffaloes can't operate. And plus, they would have been exposed. Um, and the Germans would have quickly realized what was going on. So the Highland Light Infantry cross in the night. Um, it's a quite an amazing operation, really, because they... You know, they're wading blindly through the night um, up to their waists and chests at time in the water. And then they get into the, um, there's a long sort of um, bed of, 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 of grassy weeds that they have to make their way through um, to actually reach, reach hard ground. And they, they, so it's a really masterful operation on their part. They, they do it so quietly, the Germans never hear them. And they suddenly, the Germans here are presented at dawn with pretty close to a whole battalion of British soldiers uh, on their doorstep. I didn't realize that they did this on foot. That's incredible. They, they yeah. wade across this, this sort of southwestern shore, to, to the southwestern shore. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they pulled some of their heavier equipment, like mortars and heavy machine guns and that with a uh, assault craft the the little the fold out assault craft yeah. but they were pulling them rather than trying to paddle them because again the paddles would make noise um well, that's so a, it was a that's clever yeah really clever operation hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so it's, it's, so it's fascinating because I guess from a tactical and a strategic perspective, the Canadians did tie down the Germans on the causeway. The question is, was the cost, was the casualties, or the, the or the one that could be kicked around by armchair generals is simply the cost was the cost of that holding down on the causeway worth it in, in the end? And I think there's, but as we know, as you and I both know, there are so many moments in both the Canadian and American and British experience where you can say was the cost worth it that it is almost a, a moot conversation. That you know it it worked, the causeway fell. Um, one one of the interesting features that the film shows, and um, I've actually done research. I, I had a book come out this past year on Canadian civil affairs, and in my chapter on on the on Belgium and the Netherlands, we I talk a bit about the Scheldt estuary and the flooding that was going on. Mm-hmm. And the flooding is a is an interesting feature because, of course, it challenges the soldiers as as you've talked about. Um, you know, narrowing where they can operate, restricting their movement. But it was also a challenge for civilians, and I wonder if, in your research, in your book, and if your 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 work, did you come across the challenges for these civilians that were suddenly stuck in these in these zones? Well, Valkren is particularly of interest there because it largely the flooding was German initiated, but at Valkren it's us. Yeah. You know, we we flood the island, um, and so Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, who is uh, a temporary commander of First Canadian Army after Lieutenant General Harry Crear fell ill, um, he and his strategists are looking at Valkyrie Island, which is a really formidable fortress. Um, it's got large bunkers, lots of heavy guns, uh, and a large German contingent of of garrison in it, and what he realized was the Achilles heel of the island was it's entirely below sea level, except for a little bit of high ground around Middleburg, um, the central city. And what's keeping the water out are these big dikes, um, which are still there today. Uh, they've been rebuilt and, uh, and Valkyrie is still below sea level. Mm-hmm. Um, and he decides that what they will do is they bring in RAF bomber command and they blow big holes in the dikes and that floods the majority of the island which has the effect of cutting off the germans from being able to easily move from one fortress to another mm-hmm. and and it really hinders their ability but almost 2500 dutch end up drowning or dying of starvation or whatever on valkyrie island as a result of of that bombing so it's there's a cost there and Simmons was will- he knew this was going to be the cost, um, but he was willing to take that, um, accept that cost to achieve what he thought was the only way to victory. And again, armchair generals, um, is, was that a right decision or a wrong decision? Interestingly, I've I interviewed an, quite a number of people uh, who had been were young people um, in their 12, 12 to 15 years old in on Valkyrie Island at the time. And none of them condemned the Canadians for doing what they did because um, they they'd been living under the German occupation there for quite a long time, uh, really since 1940. And it was a pretty harsh uh, occupation. A lot of the young people, um, these ones were too young, but once you hit it being about 16 years old, they were um, being rounded up and sent to Germany to work as forced laborers. So, and a lot of them had also been forced to, Vlissigen, for example, was evacuated by the Germans largely. Um, and Vlissigen is a city on the um, south side of the um, of Falkland Island, right at the entrance of the Shelf Estuary. Um, and that was so the Germans could fortify that town. Um, <clears throat> those people weren't, they were just told to leave. So they had to go in inland and find somewhere to stay uh, with other farmers and, and that. The farmers, of course, their fields were all flooded, so they couldn't farm anymore. So there, there's a huge food shortage and crisis created as a result. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, the uh, the Dutch uh, suffered mightily in this, you know, and that's partly the genesis of the hunger winter that the Dutch will then face. It starts really in late October, early November, uh, with the big cities of Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Utrecht, all of those cities not being able to get the food supplies that they need to actually feed their populations. And, you know, the, the whole southern part of Holland was a major food source for them. And some of it's now behind allied lines and is shut off that way. And the rest is the farms have been flooded. They're not growing the crops. And the rail system has collapsed as well because the Germans were using all the rails for their own purposes. Yeah. So we see this, the, the hunger winter sits in and mass starvation in the cities. Yeah, and, and so it's very, very much... The, you know, the, obviously the consequences of war, that's, that's the bottom line, but it's part of this lo- larger narrative of the Dutch struggle to survive in, in the midst of this very, very brutal fighting. I think mm-hmm. it's, um, there's that, there's that one, some of there, I think there's that one famous photo where you see sort of the tops of the churches peeking out over the waterline and things like that. And they talk about yeah. sort of all they see is steeples. All, it's all the houses are gone and things like that. And yeah. I, I just, uh, yeah, it, it, it must, it must've been an incredible mm-hmm challenging time for Dutch civilians knowing they're being liberated, but knowing they have to face a cost to, to do so. Yeah. Well, and just outside of Lisigan, there was a uh, large, very tall windmill. Um, and a lot of, I think there were about 200 Dutch civilians took shelter in the uh, windmill thinking that they, they would protect if they were high enough up in it, they wouldn't be drowned by, as the water level was rising. And, most of them drowned there there's uh i was a i interviewed one you know woman who was uh or no i wish it was written account i got uh from her of she was like 10 years old i think it was and she describes very poignantly you know her uncle sliding down into the water and disappearing and her mm-hmm. her one of her uh one of her uh, brother or sister i can't remember which uh, also just suddenly was gone and and you know so there were a handful of them who actually lived um and i think they had to escape from the windmill by actually cutting a hole in the in the top of it and and getting out that way geez that's uh yeah that's a the human cost of war that's a that's a tough one to to deal Mm -hmm. with as historians we come across that so frequently it, it become it can be always make it difficult to write about these victories and really you know every victory comes with such an intense cost yeah um maybe we'll step back into a broader so that so by the time the Vulcran Vulcran Island falls to 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 the allies the Canadians and the British and um so the the port of Antwerp is now open essentially Mm -hmm. is there are there immediate strategic consequences for this opening up of the shell? Like, what does that mean for the for the allies as they're now moving east towards Germany? What it does is it really solves the uh, supply bottleneck that, that they were facing. So the supplies are moving now uh, through Antwerp at a rapid rate because it's such a huge port. Um, it wasn't severely damaged. Um, so there's the cranes and derricks and everything like that. And, it's, and there's a railroad system mm-hmm. um, that, that runs east from it. Uh, so they repair the railway. Um, they start moving trains uh, out there to where the uh, Americans and the British troops are trying to close in on on the German border. So it it solves that problem. But in a way, it's almost too late because winter's coming in. Um, So the winter strikes, uh, the winter of 1944-1945 is the worst winter in 50 years in European history. Um, So you have you know, heavy snows and rain, the endless rain. Um, So the allies pretty much stand down um, with the idea that they will renew um, offensive actions in uh, January, um, which then extends onward because the weather just keeps getting worse. Um, And the Germans gear up and instead, and they launch their last gasp uh, effort of the Battle of the Bulge, which is intended to get to Antwerp. And, and close that port. Um, it's, it's Hitler's last throw, roll of the dice in the West, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and he figures, you know, if he can get to Antwerp and they don't come anywhere near it, um, 
he can close down that port. And that's why Antwerp is also subjected to heavy bombardment by V2 and V1 rockets um, is, is as well. Um, every, his, every effort is, because Antwerp is gonna decide the fate of the war, really, um, as far as every, everyone knows that, you know, because it all comes down to supply. Um, if you've got your supplies, you're going to, the allies are going to win because they have more supplies than the Germans. And, you know, it's, it's less about numbers of troops than it is about, you know, the amount of ammunition you can bring to the front. Sure. You know, this movie's called Forgotten Battle, and it's a Dutch film. And for our listeners who haven't seen it yet, it's it's worth it's worth watching. It's entertainment, um, and the battle scene, the Walker and battle scene, is very interesting visually, and it gives you a sense of, as you pointed out, the the the, the difficulty of overcoming that that objective. Um, you have this Dutch woman working for the resistance. You have a, a Dutch, a young Dutch man working with the who's enlisted in the German armed forces, which was an interesting component. You have this Brit, British glider pilot, and the Canadian. There's no Canadian really in it. Uh, the Canadian's <laughs> not. There's like finally at the end they kind of mention where the Canadians are, and 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 largely the Canadians are sort of this unseen fighting force that eventually has to fight on the causeway. But yet the focus is on this this British glider pilot who somehow ends up with with, with one of the battalions of, of second division. Um, now and the, and the, so it's interesting to me because I don't think this Dutch, the, I don't think the producers or the directors thought that Forgotten Battle would apply in some way to the Canadian war experience. But I guess what I wanted to ask you is your thoughts on this idea that the significance of Antwerp, the importance of it, the fighting for it is often, it's not totally forgotten, but it certainly isn't a prominent part of the Canadian war memory. And I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on that or what you think of that statement. I think that's true. Um, There's a weird thing uh, if you look at the way our Canadian history deals with the um, military history of World War II, often it almost ceases to be of importance once we break out of Normandy. It's mm-hmm. other than like, oh, and then we went north. <laughs> and then there's the liberation of Holland, and that's a happy story. Um, and in between there is this whole story that doesn't really get told. And that's, you know, the Shalt Estuary, which I called the terrible victory mm-hmm. uh, in my book. And then there's the battle for the Rhineland, which mm-hmm. is this other huge battle of massive import, which I called the forgotten victory, They because it's even more forgotten than the Shalt Estuary. <laughs> um, and you look at those two campaigns, um, they are... They're the really there's three significant campaigns that Canadians fight in Europe, and that's the breakout from Normandy, the Shalt Estuary, and the Rhineland campaign. Mm-hmm. Those are and two of them hardly get mentioned at all yeah. in, in many histories. The writer just skirts right across them. You go and look at British and American histories, and well, we don't even figure, you know, in, in those. Uh, there will be mentioned that the port of Antwerp was opened. And sometimes they will say by first Canadian army, and then that's, you know, let's move on. Um, And is the importance of Antwerp even recognized? I think not in many cases. Um, It's just suddenly the supply situation is solved. Um, but how it was solved is not there. Um, a lot of people think, um, and I've seen this in other histories, that Calais and Boulogne and Dieppe and Le Havre opening up changed the dynamic. Well, they don't get opened for a long time after Antwerp is open because they were heavily damaged. You can have a port, but if you don't have any facilities, um, then you're in trouble. So Dieppe opens up quite quickly, but uh, and it wasn't severely damaged. But Dieppe is a tiny little port. It's no bigger today than it, or then as it is today. And you know, today it's primarily just um, pleasure craft that are docked there. So they were bringing a freighter or, you know, you could bring in two or three freighters a day, uh, unload them. And then you didn't really have a a good transportation system heading inland. So, yeah. So Antwerp is key and it gets forgotten. And it is interesting. Like you said, the whole Hitler's whole last gamble was to Hitler understood the importance of Antwerp. Right. And so it's, it's fascinating that, so many Canadians and perhaps even, you know, um, non-Canadians who studied the Western Allied war experience sort of pass over Antwerp. And yet there's a very clear piece of evidence in, in the war itself that 
you know, Hitler himself understood the significant, you know, strategic significance mm -hmm. of that port and sought to get it back. And then today, in so many other pieces of literature, we pass over it like it was just nothing. And, and um, I, it's hard to understand. I mean, I don't know, maybe this is a strange question. Do you have any thoughts on why this is? Do you, do you have you ever ruminated on why perhaps that this just doesn't get written about as much? I think some of it was um, the horrific cost of the battles, both the the um, Shelton and the Rhineland, were such that um, a lot of veterans didn't want to talk about these battles at all, and. You know, I had troubles when I was trying to interview veterans about the Shell Estuary, getting positioning them. You know, they they would be saying, "Well, I, you know, we attacked this polder, and and um, you know, a whole bunch of my friends got killed, and I just remember being wet and cold and and everything." And then it was like, "Well, where were you?" And they'd look at the map and say, "I don't know," you know, and um, so there was that inability and also reticence that you know it's not new the the veterans were reticent about always talking about their experiences and it was always you always felt you were kind of pulling teeth um unfortunately now of course you can hardly find a veteran to interview um so where that time is passing um but so you had that um then you had it's the shelf is such a complicated battle to study. You know, you had to, I went through thousands of documents um, to put together that story. Uh, so there was, there's a wealth of material there, but you have to sift it and, and work with it. And um, I think a lot of historians, when you look at a lot of what's gone on, they start, they start with Stacy, and we all, all do his histories of the uh, official history of the war. And a lot, quite a number of them don't go much deeper. Um, so they're writing, but they're writing, you know, because it, it does require, well, you know, when somebody's trying to do one book on the Northern, Northwest Europe campaign, I've done six books to cover that time frame right um so <laughs> it's it's kind of a tough one you know if you're gonna like if i was told okay you know you've got um words to tell the story of canada and world war ii in northwest europe you're up against a pretty tough job and probably you're going to get fixated and dog bogged down in normandy as most of the writers do yeah. including stacy by the time you emerge from normandy you're you're running out of room yeah. so it's easy then to make a quick bridge from normandy to the crossing of the rhine and the liberation of holland for that story and so the the these two stories the rhineland and the shelf estuary get pushed and pushed and pushed closer together and there's less and less room in the channel port campaign um tends to get almost completely ignored yeah absolutely almost just they sort of they liberated yeah. you know, two three sentences sometimes they liberated these towns and on on yeah. and they went yeah and that's why i decided to write the cinderella cinderella campaign which is just about the uh, Channel Port campaign. Um, it hasn't captured the great Canadian imagination yet, but <laughs> but I'm I'm ever hopeful. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if anyone can do it, you can, uh, Mark. You can. Um, now, okay. So here's kind of a, uh, an interesting question, and and you know, as historians and as authors, um, we're always I I don't know if we're cursed to watch films and sort of pick them apart. I'm not, you know, and I'm not going to ask you to give me this sort of the deep cinematic review of the film, but I guess a, a question that, and you, cause you mentioned you had seen the film. So if, a, if you were watching it with, let's say a Canadian who knew very little about the campaign um, and they sort of turned to you at the end of it and they said, well, what, what should I really be taking from this? And what is sort of the film kind of, you know, emphasizing incorrectly or, or, or over-exaggerating or something? Is there anything that stood out to you that you would, you would kind of say to a, a fellow Canadian, you were just watching the film with that, well, I want you to take this from this battle. I want you to sort of remember this about this battle, this kind of idea. Is there anything like that? Yeah, I think, I think the intensity of the Valkyrie Causeway battle, which is, is quite brutal, um, 
it is, it's kind of like Saving Private Ryan, the opening, the opening of the film with the landing at, at Omaha Beach mm -hmm. is very, very graphic and very, very accurate. Um, the rest of the film, it wanders away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with Forgotten Battle, um, the rest of the film has sort of wandered away until we get to the Vulcan Causeway. So it's kind of like at the end of the movie is, is, is its strongest point. Yeah. Because um, it really, I think what it captures is the courage that the Canadians brought to that attack who were involved in it. You see the odds they're up against, the way the Germans are anchored in. That is darn very, very accurate, I think, in, in the way it's shown. Um, so if you want to understand what combat was like in its worst case scenario uh, for Canadian troops, I think they, they caught it. Yeah. Um, I, I think they got that pretty bang on. Yeah. And I'm, I'm impressed by that because uh, one of the, it's the, I've heard two studies, two things. It's either the most expensive film the Dutch have ever made or the second most expensive yeah. film, depending on who you talk to. And undoubtedly, the reason it's that expensive is the filming of the Battle of the Causeway. Yeah. Um, that that sequence, um, you know, it's what sort of killed Passchendaele, the the um, movie a few years ago. Was you even with a big budget, and that was one of the most expensive films Canada has ever made. Even an expensive budget, you can kind of only do one battle. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which is yeah. is kind of ridiculous to think of, you know, like you know, oh, we got our one battle. What's it gonna be? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they, I think they did a good job of that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good. Um, the British paratroopers showing up in in second division uniform and fighting alongside them is kind of silly. Yeah. And then he's with the fifty first Highland Division as well. He just sort of moves around. It's like yeah, <laughs> you know? in the <laughs> yeah he just keeps appearing. Yeah. And and why they made that part of the film anyway? Because um, the glider pilots and all that that had happened well before the Shell Estuary battle really opened. So you know. Um, if they, I, I wish they had a Canadian character. Yeah. Um, you know, and and followed them through the the story. It would have been, I think, a lot more powerful. Yeah. Um, I thought having the Dutch German was a good um, a good idea. It's not historically accurate because he would have been in the Dutch SS, not in the German SS, right. um, and wouldn't have been in the Vulcan area. But you know. We'll we'll forgive them. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think to your point, and 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 you know, it is is it's it is too bad that uh, for an opportunity to have a movie that that's whose climax is largely a Canadian battle that there wasn't a Canadian character that played a role in it. I think that was a missed opportunity. But again, I I, I almost think, and and this is just me speculating, that it kind of speaks to the fact that Canadians generally kind of get left out of the story in many cases, and it's it's much more. Um, marketable to have an American or a British uh, mm. uh, soldier in it, and, and I think so for a Canadian officer for for from a cinematic from a film perspective, I guess. Yes, and it also enabled them to um, touch on Operation Market Garden, and you know the truth is Operation Market Garden is one of these iconic uh, parts of World War. II. Two, you know, there. I I read read once. No, it was actually uh, Peter Caddick Adams uh, said to a British historian, said to me that um, there's more books been written on Operation Market Garden than almost any other. Than if you took a whole bunch, all the books on Normandy and many of the books on the rest of the the Northwest Campaign, you would just get up to the even number of what's been written on Operation Market Garden. So yeah. it it holds this. Um, incredible fascination i know when we take uh canadians on battlefield tours into that northwest europe there's an expectation to go to arnhem we i, I always struggle with you know it's it's i think historians love we love to critique you know historical films it's it's i think it's in our dna 
um, as, yeah. as authors, as researchers, but we do, we also have to always be very aware that these, you know, there's very serious marketing decisions being made in any script and any plot. Um, and, 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 and I guess from a Canadian perspective, it's almost like, well, at least they showed this very important battle and then they showed it <laughs> and maybe we take that as consolation, I guess, speaking of that, and maybe this is the final, final question. Is there anything, if there was. For our listeners out there, is there anything else you think that it's important that listeners take away from under the understanding of the Battle of the Shelt Estuary in general? I think the main thing to take away from it is the costs. You know, there was almost 5,000 Canadians killed and wounded in, in that battle. It's, it's, it's uh, our most costly battle of, of World War II um, and or campaign, I guess you need to say. Um, and when that was over, First Canadian Army continues to suffer from a very large shortage of manpower. Um, so we're always fighting with one arm tied behind our backs. Yeah. Um, you see over and over and over again in the future there that um, a company is fielding 50 men versus 120, which would have been their assigned strength. Um, and yet the Canadians never stop advancing and that goes to um the factor that it was a volunteer army um they had signed on and 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 they were motivated on a, a large higher level of motivation than you get with a conscripted army um and so i i i put a lot of it's it's really uh, a testimony to that generation of canadians who served in World War II um, in the front lines, the, their dedication to each other, their dedication to the job they had to do, and their willingness to make you know, incredible sacrifices. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.